The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? I hope that you are looking after yourselves, being kind to each other and of course yourself. Keeping warm if you are in somewhere that is um, rather chilly at the moment and if you are one of those people who has got the sunshine just now, I hope that you are enjoying that lovely heat. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've had an episode. Obviously, we had our spooky season. And again, thank you to all our incredible guests for that. And we are back for the next few weeks with some wonderful guests for you. And then we'll have a little break and then we'll be back in 2023. And we are going to be doing another series. Um, This time it is going to be on hormonal health, um, covering everything from periods to menopause to IVF and everything in between acne, mood swings, etc, etc. There will be a call out for that for those of you who are involved in the creative industries to come and talk about how we balance our hormonal health while possibly being on set or on a theatre tour. Before we get started with the episode today, I wanted to just let everybody know that we now have uh, a support system where you can be a persistent pal and a nasty hero. It is a membership scheme. Everything is linked in the description of today's episode. Um, some social media stuff has gone out, so some of you will have already seen. We are definitely at a crossroads, Louise and I. As everybody knows, we are unfunded and everything that we do comes out of our own pockets. Um, we are also two struggling creatives as well with multiple and many jobs, um, which means that we can't push things with Persistent and Nasty, the podcast, the advocacy work, the bringing back the script readings, etc., um, without support, um, as it's just the two of us and we obviously don't have the resources, um, other organisations do, um, so we really need your help. We need your help to keep going. Um, so if you can afford to give us the price of a large coffee every month, um you would be making a huge difference, not only to us, but to our listeners and to those of us who come to us for advocacy help, who come to the coffee mornings for a sense of community who can't afford to do that. And uh, that is a really beautiful thing to be able to do. And I hope that you can, Um, as I say, to be a persistent pal and a nasty hero. The link is in today's uh, description and you can find it on all of our social media. Talking about our social media, I'm just going to mix it up today. You can follow us on Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent Na- and Nasty. It's not the same as Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Persistent and Nasty. Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. Um, today's guest, everyone, is the wonderful, brilliant powerhouse Sarah Grant. Sarah is a filmmaker, performer, writer, poet and we discuss her new um, comedy short Candy 
which again you can see right now on 16 films, 16, no, 16 days, 16 films. We also talk about uh, many of the barriers to this industry and what really needs to be done if people want to make a true difference. So lots of fun, lots of rage, lots of let's shake this system up, all with a sense of comedy and joy. And I know that you are all going to absolutely love today's episode. For today's episode, what do I suggest? Oh, it's December. So mulled wine. Oh, a nice like hot chocolate maybe with like an added flavour. I have seen some um, orange hot chocolates floating about. You can obviously have a classic mint hot chocolate. Um, There used to be a hot chocolate and it was like a black forest one. I have a feeling it might be Costa. They don't sponsor us, but, you know, um, it was amazing. Um, so, <laughs> you know, flavoured hot chocolate, flavoured coffee, um, maybe a wee hot toddy. Or for those coming along to the um, persistent and nasty festive coffee morning, a Prosecco, box Fizz. And who knows, maybe we'll move on to cocktails later on in the afternoon. But you can always just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Um, Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Louise and I are joined today by the brilliant Sarah Grant. Yay! Hi! Thank you so much for having me. I've been such a big fan of the show for forever. So I feel very, very, very good to be here right now. Well, that's well, exciting because we're big fans of yours. So yeah, it's <laughs> great. Very. I have been um, silently or loudly plotting to get you on the podcast for about two years, if not three. I'm like, mm, <laughs> how can we make this happen? And here we are. Yay. Perfect timing. Um, so, Sarah, for our listeners, give us a little potted history of you your background what brought you into this industry of ours absolutely so my name is Sarah Grant I am a Glasgow born and bred writer director and as of recently performer um and I also do a bit of poetry as well uh, I have always wanted to be a film director, always wanted to be a film director I think the first time I saw Moulin Rouge when I was a teenager and I saw like this explosion of colour and theatre and these songs and just this absolute madness. And then I just had this light bulb moment of someone decided to do this. And then I was like, I must be this decision maker. I need to throw my brain at the wall. Um, So I uh, have been making films since 2014. A lot of the time on a kind of smaller budget, uh, um, really little micro budgets I actually considered leaving the industry as much as I wasn't really part of the industry very much like indie on the fringes um part of the culture but not actually part of the industry around about 2018-19 because it was such a fucking sausage fest and I got so frustrated and I was like this is not a space for me to tell stories this is not a space that values my voice everyone keeps telling me that I need to go away and then start a brand new film festival or a brand new organization that's just for women and I was tired of coming up with new ways to say that I don't need to create a new table I deserve a space at this one And I was so over it. But then 
I decided to enter the 40 hour film challenge by myself and just throw myself at the wall. And I made a film called Scare, which was about um, the, the terrifying mental gymnastics that your brain goes on if you have to take a pregnancy test when you weren't expecting to. And um, I put myself in front of the camera for the first time and it just brought me back. It brought me back. I was like, oh, this is why I do this. And um, it was a very incredible wake up call because I did it by myself because I was expecting backlash and I didn't get any so it was very nice to be like oh maybe if you throw yourself at the wall then people will respond um so after that I uh, made my first industry short film called Candy and um the myself and my friend Katrina Katrina who is also in Candy we write for television as well and we have this year released our first mini pilot episode of a female friendship comedy called Stunners and that's where I'm at just now it's been a mad 2022 (laughs) I love it it's brilliant and when you started doing your films were your microfilms that you talked about earlier on um, the kind of genre that you were following what were they were they kind of empowerment or the kind of feminist themes that we'll ensure we're going to touch on and when we discuss candy or was it just like your love of all genres or were we doing Milan Rouge but in Scotland (laughs) um oh I wish I could do Moulin Rouge in Scotland that'd be amazing um I have always had in the back of my head this little voice that says you're going to make the Scottish Amelie I don't know what that is but at some point I want to make the Scottish Amelie when I when I started making films it was comedic light-hearted joyful very much um as much as I didn't have the language or I didn't really have the neurons connected to figure it out at the time, looking back, I think I was aware that as a working class person from Glasgow, I was really used to seeing my narratives through a poverty porn lens, seeing this utter depravity and sadness that I didn't even realise at the time was more for the entertainment of the middle classes like and the spectacle of it. And I was like, why do we keep seeing this side of Scotland so sad when I know personally that it's really fun and it's really funny it's when we are when our times are hardest we are at our funniest so I think I went in not even I think because I hadn't at that time in my early days come up really figured out that there were things against me as a, a female director um so I didn't feel the need to try and answer that at that point I was a bit naive so I was just trying to make films that were really nice and happy and um joy is something that I think I try to keep through all my work no matter what I'm talking about um not sure if that answered the question (laughs) it's great I think like what you've touched on there that idea of kind of poverty porn and like being from Glasgow and being working class and what that when you say those words to certain people what they envision Yep. Yep. Um, when and you're a novelty. You're a novelty because you work in the arts, mm-hmm. and you like, oh, I didn't expect you to speak that way. Do the do the nasal voice. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so upsetting. Uh, Elaine's rage is through the roof already, and um, we're only about ten <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> but I think it's that thing of like. There seems to be, or has been for so long, I think we're maybe hopefully seeing a chip away at progress here now, or starting now, but there was what, like one slice of Scottishness that the film industry wanted to see. Like there's only interest, it's only interested in one certain type of, of story. 
and it, it was predominantly working class, but only working class under certain conditions and with yes. certain issues. Yep. Um, predominantly male and being told by men and being led by men. So I think um, yeah. the work that you want to do and what you're pushing to get made is, is is vitally important because like Scotland's made up of a really broad tapestry of amazing artists who are influenced. We're all influenced by so many different types of people and from from comedic to dramatic and we've got a lot to offer and it's just not being represented on our screens right now. So more power to you, pal. Thanks, Paul. I just think like you're right. It's just it's not being represented, and like you're, and if you're right, like it is all about this one view of Scotland. And the only time there's ever a deviation is if we want to show Scotland as the the what the what's on a shortbread tin. That's it. You've got the poverty porn of the shortbread tin version of Scotland, and there's nothing in between. And yeah, there's no real looking for women in general, or like you know any anything else it's a case of it's it's that kind of hyper male hyper violent and just deprived just depravity and like I I know that that is a real narrative and it's valid but I think it's reductive to think it's the only narrative <laughs> yes totally. absolutely Louise and I were both on mute there so you could just focus on Sarah and nodding away yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh shit yeah we're doing podcasts come on Elaine four, four years of this <laughs> <laughs> muting and nodding muting and nodding but I think that's a really I think what you touch on there as well about the women's voices being kind of silenced as well because even in those films because mm-hmm. I'm sure people listening like the first kind of ones that kind of always jump out are train spot and and sweet 16 Yes. They're, you know they're the they're the ones that everybody kind of it goes to and then we can you know we can go further back and look at the ones in the kind of 80s as well but the women are not anywhere there no and if they are there they're either there for sex mm-hmm. or they're there to be the caretaker yeah the despairing caretaker yeah they are not being used they're being ignored as the caretaker and they're like I just have to stand on the side and be very sad as my boy gets killed and I'm like that's so real for so many families why do we need to keep putting this as drama it's not for entertainment do something about it (laughs) yeah and that's it I mean you know and people would argue I guess with Sweet 16 and someone like Ken Loach that he is always trying to put a narrative and shine a light on that but there is also then the people that um, digest these films that are taking it in but then do nothing about it yes and totally. yeah that's that's the bigger thing but there's also something I think for me you know the the women in my life and certainly you know think about like my granny and where like she was from and my my great aunties and like the the power in those women that tend oh, yeah. to be shown yeah I don't get that like I think, I mean, I don't know whether you kind of have the heritage of your granny in the steamy and the laundry and that space for talk and for information. And my granny gets called the Oracle because she knows everything about everybody. And I don't ever see that. And I just think it is so powerful, especially when we're, I think, like we in our access to media are able to tell stories that we know is just a tiny fraction of what we've been handed down. And there's nothing I want more than my granny to be a film star. <laughs> so, because she's so funny and she's so, her stories are incredible. And just 
the way she can honestly she sits if she's at a party she'll just sit in the corner and she'll just talk and everyone else is quiet and she holds the whole room in her hands and I have never felt the way that I do watching a film or a television program as I do when I listen to her and I don't think that's because I mean obviously she's magical and she's she's a literal witch I love her very much but I do think that there is a way that that can be carried in screen I just don't think anyone's trying or maybe not anyone's trying it's just it's not something that we're seeing in the mainstream and that is a real shame (laughs) yeah it absolutely absolutely is a real shame um and like obviously your writing comes into it as well like that's such a tricky exciting challenging dual role to play to be the writer and the director it would be great if you can kind of talk more about that as well I think because I started when I went to uni I was studying film and English and it wasn't like a film school it was just I was it was more a theory course than our later years we got to hold the camera and because everyone in my class was doing the same thing we were all had to be our own writer directors unless you knew you wanted to be a role that wasn't I don't want to say a creative role because production is incredibly creative but I remember at uni it being frowned upon and the women being pushed to be the producers while the men were the writer directors auteur theory ram up your arse and it was interesting so if I wanted to have anything made if I wanted to get a chance to make anything I kind of had to facilitate it for myself by writing something that I wanted to make um and that just became my practice I don't I don't think there's been there's been rarely anything fiction that I've made that I haven't written myself and that's not because I'm not looking for opportunities to direct other workers like other writers work it's just that that's what my practice has been and the stories I'm interested to tell are usually the ones that come in the middle of the night or in the shower or when I'm driving or when I'm bored and I'm like oh I've got an idea (laughs) um and usually I don't know if you've ever seen Hook you know the Steven Spielberg film Hook and there's a bit where uh, there's a bit where Captain Hook is doing the whole um I'm going to kill myself and then he's like don't try to stop me Smee don't you dare try to stop me try to stop me Smee that is me to my partner and to Katrina anytime I have a new idea I'm like I'm gonna make a feature film in a week next week let's do it don't try to stop me Smee <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a process <laughs> um but I think directing my own work is easy because I'm a very visual thinker so when I'm writing quite often I'll have to go through my scripts and cull them because I overwrite because I'll do something like she sits at her desk spots something on the shelf and reaches and takes it down off the shelf but that's terrible writing but it's because when I write it it's I need to play it through as I see it in my head so I'll I'll write what I'm seeing I'll write the vision the direction and then I'll go and make the script actually nice (laughs) and and, and readable Louise is doing lots of nodding (laughs) oh I call that the vomit draft um you just draft yeah and just like it's a total guddle I'm actually in that process right now like 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 this very second and it's like after that like unguddle it in order to sort of yeah, figure out what's then going to be the revised version. So yeah, I totally know what you. you totally I'm sorry, it is December. It's Christmas. Why? Like, I'm very much like nothing is the vomit draft stage now. We read the wrap up stage. Oh we- God, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. I'm, I'm making rods from my own back, left, right, centre. But here we are. 
<laughs> this is not about me and my trauma. Please carry on. <laughs> the writer trauma I think it's really fascinating this shift that's happened in our industry though like um, maybe it was always there and it's just we're seeing more of it uh, over the last certainly it feels to me over the last five six years of in particular um, people whose voices have been more marginalized coming to the fore and um, doing dual roles, whether that's producing and performing or um, directing and writing or directing and producing. Um, and it, it's really interesting. I think it's because something that you said, like people weren't making space at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're building our own table, it kind of feels like. Yeah, it feels, it's annoying though, because as much yeah. as we're building our own table, we should be getting space at the one that already exists. Yeah, I don't there's plenty of room at that table. They just need to shift up. Yeah, I don't think we're building our own table. I think we're taking crates and pallets and the le- like broken wardrobe doors and a big fuck off hammer and having and creating like an addendum to the table, being like, it's all right, guys, we're here too. What are we talking about? Someone read the minutes. <laughs> you said there was no room. Oh, there's room now. No, don't mind us. Who doesn't love an extension? This is the table conservatory. Yeah, it's, like it's it. a, <laughs> I mean, it's everybody, it. everybody sits in their conservatory, so you know what? What are they doing? Exactly. I, mean, exactly. I don't know that I live in a flat. Um, people that sit in their conservatory, I've got no idea. Um, I don't know. I'm not a Let us know in a postcard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I know what you mean, but I think it's interesting what you're talking about. Um, multi rolling and. I think there's a lot of strategy in that. Um, also, we're kind of in the, like, during our professional careers, like, from the transition from our learning stage to our professional careers, I'm using our very generally as, like, you know, the, as millennials, is that I think we, everything changed, the laws of distribution changed while we were learning. So we were constantly having to, adapt and things and while now every teenager with a phone is a content creator and knows how to do that they know how to condense stories which I think is fantastic like the laws of like the gatekeeping of like the the good old BBC have come down with streamers and with web series and that's constantly changing which is great but I think that with millennials in the industry they're having to bring a freshness but they're also having to work in the old systems while making the new ones um for me I never had any aspirations of being an actor but I started putting myself in front of the camera and that's really really helped me because it means that I know that occasionally I'll get to tell more authentic stories by being the voice that I'm writing for but also it's really powerful to be oh you're that girl from that thing I've seen you and weirdly enough that has given me so much more power than I did when I was just when I was writing and directing but not being in front of the camera because people didn't know who I was and they'd look at me and they'd write me off or they'd listen to me and they'd write me off but if they saw my work and saw I was in it and saw that I also directed it or I also wrote it then they would like they would they would link me with the piece which I think is harder to do if there's not a visual link you have to spoon feed people <laughs> I mean this is true you do and like our listeners some of them will know you because uh, you did some BBC social stuff didn't you Sarah yes I did and um, that's kind of I fell ass backwards into tv um, which is good. <laughs> 
film can be a difficult medium because there is no obvious pipeline for you to progress. It's you make X amount until you're noticed. And there's an element of, I feel in our film industry specifically, of 10 years of hard work for overnight success. So you're heralded as the new golden child, but it's only when you've made your way and everything that you've done to pull yourself up will be disregarded. And that really, really annoys me because there's so much value in the development journey and your own personal journey. And if the people who are in charge of your new development taking you into industry aren't going to see that and acknowledge that and think about how that can actually progress, how they can use that going forward, then they're they're missing out on a huge opportunity to help you in your development. TV is different because television is a hungry market. They're always looking for things and they don't look, whereas like, it is true that annoyingly in London, a lot of commissioners or development people will go to people's stand-up shows or people will go to theatre shows in the fringe. And that sometimes annoys me because I'm like, just because you're a great stand-up comedian doesn't mean you know how to handle a half-hour scripted. But there is a development platform. You could be a writer-performer and then be like, have you ever thought about writing for screen? You could be doing sketches. So I started doing sketches for BBC The Social and then was approached by BBC Studios to do their kind of higher quality sketches, higher paid sketches for short stuff. Myself and Katrina started writing the characters of Lola and Ruby and we ended up doing really well with those. That one, Our first sketch that we made together won a Royal Television Society Scotland Award for this short form sketch that was about period colours because it was something we wanted to talk about and we got to do it without the gatekeepers of TV commissioners. So we got to go to TV commissioners with an RTS award and with a view count and it just made it so much easier. We were pushing at an open door to get into the television industry. So the pipeline was really obvious there. And I wish there was a there wish there was a, a pipeline similar in film because it's just a make a film, get it into festivals. And that's a real access issue because anyone with a phone can make a sketch, whereas not anyone with a phone can make a film. Oh, you can. But in terms of getting it acknowledged by festivals that still play by the old rules of what constitutes a good film, it's difficult to it's difficult to progress. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I think it's it's also just that idea of uh, I'm glad you touched on access because it's also with the film thing. Yeah, you write a sketch, you can be two writer makers and a phone for a sketch. And then particularly when there's this hunger for content that you mentioned, uh, but film is like, when we talk about no budget, we don't really mean no budget because there still needs to be something to pull together a team to make this happen. Oh God, yeah. And the thing that people don't tell you is that actually a big chunk of that budget needs to go into your entry fees for your festival. Uh, so oh. much. Like, that's what you're actually going to need the most. You can yeah, exactly. on everything else. And a lot of that just gets lost in the production process as an element of like, that we'll worry about that problem when we get to it. We just need this money to actually get this made. And then you're like, ah, future Sarah's problem. Future Sarah's mad. <laughs> you stole all the festival budget. So, but I have done it many, many times. I, I th I'm like, I was going to, I'm glad that Lou's mentioned that because I wanted to mention that as well, because it is an access issue and it is like, you know, not to harp on about the fact that you've mentioned that you're working class, but it really, for me, it's a big thing, like also being working class and from a working class background, it's like, you know, not everybody ha even knows that they'll have to pay to get into a festival. Yeah. That reality of you're closing out a whole bunch of 
creatives by putting that block there. I understand the bigger picture. I understand the money making and the marketing and the business element of it. But there has to be a way that we as a industry start to move this forward so that it is far more inclusive and accessible. Honestly, I could talk about this for hours. See when I hear some middle-class white person being like, I wonder where all the working-class people are in this industry. Why aren't we seeing them come through? And I'm like, because you told them to drop out of high school at 15. They weren't good at maths or English or physics or um, techie. So you told them to drop out and go to college. If it was a girl, you told them to go and study hairdressing. If it was a boy, you told them to study construction the amount of really savvy people that went to my school that were rubbish at academia but they were the most on it like sharpest funniest wittiest people that I know would have worked their way up the rungs of like high-end tv quicker than anything and there is just no gap to get to the industry people are like oh you still need to go to like you know you need to have a degree of some sort and experience of some sort and I'm like and I'm sorry how are some people who are having how are some people who are going to state-funded schools and getting their arts and their music and their media studies um like classes if they have them to begin with completely not really axed how are they meant to know that that's a career rips my knitting oh <laughs> so annoying <laughs> Yes, it is. And also love that you said rips my knitting. Um, <laughs> for all our international listeners, that means it really pisses us off. Yes. Um, <laughs> in case we need, but it is true. But what you've just said is so true. It's the fact that you are put into a box before you're even out of school. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. It's so, like, it's so bad. I remember, so I bring this up at any point. So me and... Um, my dad is like my biggest fan. My mom and dad are not my biggest fan. They are the loveliest, most supporting people ever. Um, but my dad just didn't get it. See, when I was like, I want to study film, he didn't understand. And to be, to be fair, I was 18. I was like, no, but my dad, listen, I'm doing a joint degree. So I'm doing English and filmmaking. So I can get a job in the film industry while I work on my book to be an author. And he's like, oh, for fuck's sake, Sarah. And when I was going through uni and everything afterwards, my dad's like filmmaking, filmmaking. What's she going to do? Get a filmmaking. And my sister was studying maths. Like, maths, that's what's going to get a job. That's what's, and just carried on. Honestly, he slated me for years. He was really fucking mean to me about, and like talked about me to a lot of friends. And it's great now because these people are like, how's your failure of a daughter doing? And I'm just like, la, 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 la. So he's eating his words, but he just, he didn't get it. He didn't get it until he did. My first film when I came back, because I, I went traveling for a year, like or I worked abroad for a year. And then I came back and I was working as a waitress and I won a competition that won me my first batch of equipment. I had like this five-year savings plan to buy my first camera, but then I won this competition that got me eight grand worth of equipment. So I got like my camera, my tripod, I got everything. I was like, wow, suddenly I can be a filmmaker. And I got to make my first film. And um it was a quick case of, it was like an industry um, competition. So Heart in the Right Place didn't really have the infrastructure to back it up. Things like, oh, we need to release, you get six weeks to make this, but it took them three weeks to actually release the money from the account to get it into their bank. So my dad was like, 
I don't know what to do, but what can I do? It was just there. So he became like, he he was just like, I'll give you some of the money up front because I know that it's coming in and I'll like, you know, take take some of the, the funding back. And he was doing catering. He helped me with transport. He was there. He was up with me, like, you know, going over my spreadsheets with me. He was in the film. He was on set all day. And it wasn't until after he seen that, he was like, oh my God. God, what is this? And then afterwards, he's been a hundred percent on side, and it is just a case of being like, you know, unless you have a cultural knowledge of it, how on earth would you know? Um, and it did take him seeing it for him to get on board with it. And I think there's so many people that I wish could see it because they're depriving their children the chance of being part of it because they don't get it, and that's fair enough. But yeah. I was very lucky that I was hard-headed enough to just ignore my dad's when I was like, I'm studying film. <laughs> but exposure is so key. It's just so fucking key. Sorry, I swore. Uh, it's really important. Are you apologising that you I don't swore? Know. I, don't know why. I, I don't know why. I'm in a, I'm in a weird sort of corporate brain space. I've been doing contracts all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's one of those things that really, what well, really rips my knitting is that... Um, the thing you were just saying, Sarah, about middle class people asking the question about where are all the working class people? And <laughs> heavy book. And I think it's like no no organization with the resources is prepared to do the meaningful work, which is to seed it at an exposure level early. Because like I see these lots of well-intentioned programs and there's diversity forms and equal ops forms, and it's like, yeah, but actually, like there's a missing piece in the pathway here because if you are finding people by chance or through luck that check a box for you, that looks great for your data and your evaluation. And it looks like you're doing something, but realistically, who's got time if they're working class or they're a single parent or they're from a background where they don't have access to these things, no experience filling out forms, to figure out how to write the application and do the thing that you still require them to do have like support materials and write these 500 word statements personal statements and all that shit so like there's still this like you might be claiming on a data level that you're doing the work but you're not you're not doing anything meaningful at a ground level I am sorry but I think that people if you're going to have an x amount if you're going to have a form that takes more than half an hour or an hour then you should pay people for it courtesy wage 30 quid like but that's like the the unpaid labor that is required off the bat is instantly going to turn these people off not just because they don't have they can't like what they kind of say what they don't understand about like yeah but this this is going to get you money and like well it's not actually if I'm very 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 like you know lucky or what I have to say strikes a very particular chord with what you're looking for then it might potentially get me money but you're still and a lot of the a lot of the programs that offer funding in Scotland require an unpaid development process first so it's a case of spend all this time to get on our program and then spend the time unpaid on the program for six weeks or however then pitch and then you might not get the money anyway and you've done a week's worth of a week's worth of unpaid labor per month like to just to have a chance at it and that's the best you can hope for also I get like the whole I get people um I get the organizations but thing is, arts council is a very middle class space. Where you're finding the 
the working class artist is the grassroots movement because they don't understand how they can art, how they can get to those places. And the thing is, you don't know what you don't know. Like, how are, how are these people meant to know? And what really annoys me is that when the organisations say that they're doing the work and all they do is put out their form the way they don't put out their application form on their own personal Twitter, don't do any sort of public outreach and say, we encourage people from marginalised backgrounds to apply. And I'm like, if if they weren't seeing your content before, then they're not going to see that now and go, I should apply. They should be doing the effort to meet people halfway to get the opportunity and the, the chance to do the opportunity without it being a huge, like a huge pain in the arse in front of the people that they want to apply, but they're not going to do that work. Because can't be arsed. Can't be arsed, yeah. yeah. It's not like they don't have the resource, it's they no. can't be arsed. And yeah. I don't really think they, they really want to. Because to do that foundation level work would change the landscape of the sector that they gatekeep. And it. it would change it, it and it doesn't benefit them. And I think secretly, subconsciously or not, that's the reason. Because it's not a lack of resource, no. not a lack of will. Well, it is a bit of a lack of will. It's just a refusal, an obtuse refusal. And it's rooted in that, I, I think, personally. The thing is, if, if they... If Maybe they... on one today. <laughs> oh, man. I, mean, I agree Fuck with you, though. Fuck the system. If these people, like... And I, I, and I don't think it's conscious. I do think it's unconscious, but it is an unconscious bias and it has no place in the arts. Is that I think the people who are in charge of facilitating these opportunities understand that if they actually did the effort to get them in front of the people that would make them look good, then they would have to then work with those people who might not communicate or participate in a way that they expect. And that makes them uncomfortable. And again, I don't think it's conscious, but I think it makes things a lot, I think it makes things a lot easier if you don't have one person on the cohort being like, wait, am I getting paid for this? Because I don't have time to do this. Whereas other people are like, oh yeah, I'll just do that. And you're like, Ugh. 100%, 100%. Like I've been lucky enough to be on a couple of development programs in the last couple of years and they've been great and I hugely appreciate them. And the people who run them from the organizations that deliver them are great people mm-hmm. with, you know, brilliant brilliant intentions and genuine intentions but the reality is that both of them required to me to give up time a lot of time over the over the course of months like I said it was a Saturday for the most part but that was still a Saturday that I wasn't working in one of my many jobs or like or just time off for rest that I was committing to that uh-huh. sort of under the auspices of like you should be grateful for it and and I was but at the same time it's like but that I uh, I operate within a sphere of privilege by being able to give you that Saturday to be developed by you. A yeah. lot of people can't do that. So therefore, the development program, when you put in italics and bold, we welcome applications for people from marginalised backgrounds. It's you not accessible to them. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, yeah. like, oh, I'm the exact same. Been on a few development things, had the best time, done some incredible work, but have felt the financial ramification in the following weeks and months. And... And, and being resentful, and I think I'm allowed to be resentful for that, because if it's not offering me an opportunity that is going to further my career in the terms of the fact that I need my career to live, my career is not a hobby. My career is how I survive. It's how I work. It's how I pay the bills. And if you're not furthering that, then don't put yourself out there as someone who will further that, because I think it would make so much if someone was just like here's an opportunity for unpaid development 
people would jump on that if they had the time. But if it's a case of here's the industry opportunity for you to actually get something made, then it makes it so much harder to say no to. Of course it does. Also, if you're a caterer, whether that's, you know, you're a parent or you're caring for a relative or your partner or um, whoever, a Saturday, doesn't matter what fucking day it is. Yeah. You're still a caterer. Yeah, like, exactly. stop. And even like when you do have that time, you're probably either having to pay for respite or you're having to pay for childcare mm-hmm. on top of possibly losing out on work. And you know, for most people in the arts, they do tend to work the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Whether we're either our, our, our side hustle job is either like facilitating workshops or you work in hospitality. Um, so, you know, you do. So you are taking time off your work for that. Yeah. We into the industry rather than, as you both have said, calling it what it is and being honest about it rather than maybe kind of trying to tie it up in a nice little bow. Because, you know, if we're, if we're all honest about it, then we can go, okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. If it's a case of it was sold of, sold to us as what we want it to be, what we need to understand. But I don't know. There's a, there's a whole language thing. Clearly, I'm clearly I'm just fucking up. I'm just against the system today. I'm clearly on. I mean, on one. that's why you're on the <laughs> persistent and nasty podcast. I was about to say, I'm feeling I'm feeling this is very persistent and nasty vibes. So I'm like, fuck everything. Absolutely, the system is fuck. So like, yeah. it, and even even where parts of it are doing quote-unquote good work it's still operating in a fucked system yeah yeah so it's like yeah even if you don't even if you allow for the fact that this is going to be so much harder for working class like double it with working class women because again you're talking about that Saturday even if you happen to happen to be off there's always the unpaid emotional labor that is going to be on our mind that we're going to have to put off that is not on the mind of our male counterparts and that's just something else that has to get battled with and I just don't think any of that is doing because again there's that thing I'll I'll sit down on the Saturday and I'll be like oh I wish I could be here but I hate that all I can think about is that I've ran out of pants and I really need to do my bloody washing and I hate that that's in my mind if it was a case if I could just forget about it and then only think about that after the session was over that'd be great but that's just not how it works so very annoying (laughs) Yeah, no, and as you say as well, like you, you can then kind of tre- treble that, I guess, if you are um, a woman of the global majority, mm-hmm. or if you are someone who is DDF disabled, or you are coming from the LGBTQ plus community. Like all of those things add because there's already a whole other set of shit going on yeah. on top of that already. I was at a networking event last week and I met Victoria Thomas, who is the person who made the birthday party, which was a um short circuit funded film a while ago that was an incredible film about FGM and it was incredible to hear her talk because one thing she was talking about is that um black cinema in the UK is usually seen through is is mostly seen through a south london lens so trying to tell black british stories in scotland is difficult because scotland is a minority within the uk so Scotland acting as a minority in the UK is very much like a we need to have our scottish voices so being a minority within the minority victoria's like black british like um stories through her lens of being someone living um like living and based in Scotland is not getting a seat at the table at all because it's not perceived to be and it was just really interesting 
it was really interesting talking to her about that and it's just something that and again as someone who's working class I'm very very aware of 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 practices and processes that have access issues to me but again that's just like the surface level compared to what other people deal with and I feel very very privileged to be able to rant about it on podcasts like this but again like it is a a fuck system (laughs) it's um Um, I'm really sorry no, I was just going to say I really obviously want to talk about candy. Five minutes ago, I was genuinely like, all oh, my films have joy. I've <laughs> gone into this like, oh my God, this working class rage. It's so, it, again, though, it's like it's really important because you can't have the joy without the rage, I think, because then we, yeah. don't, we, we can't appreciate the moments of the joy if we don't yes. have the rage. Um, so, persistent and nasty is all about where the joy and the storytelling intersects with the rage. So, absolutely. Let's <laughs> talk that. about your story. Your story. <laughs> so candy's amazing. Candy. Yay. I, uh, I watched it recently. I watched it the other week there. It's great. It's Thank great. you. Um, Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And I loved uh, the night I spent um, on your set running around pretending to be drunk in the freezing cold. So that you was were an angel. <laughs> you were an angel. Like the what you guys had to what you guys had to go through was very, very, very much appreciated. It was great fun. It was like it was a right good. You had a you operated a brilliant set, and we all felt very looked after and having we were having a riot. So oh, I didn't have to do I didn't have to do anything. That was all Misha looking after everyone. Misha being an absolute angel of a producer, oh. and the amount, of time, the amount of times that things were going on that she just didn't tell me it was happening. And it's like <laughs> you need to know this, and she's like no. Okay. <laughs> we do love our Misha. She is just, just the best. Oh, she the was an she, protect, she protected me from so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yes, tell us about Candy, and then you know because it is out now. People, you can watch it, so it's very exciting. So let's yeah. fill everybody in. So Candy, I'm sure we're also going to want to fuck the system about certain things in Candy. Oh my god. <laughs> fucking the system with my big ass buddy so candy is my first industry funded short film um it was commissioned through sharp shorts with um short circuit and it's the story of mandy who's a burlesque enthusiast plus size burlesque enthusiast working up to her first performance she thinks it's going to happen at a kind of a cabaret open mic night on a very glossy stage but she bottles it and um but what ends up happening is to save her best friend um from a questionable like a controlling relationship she ends up helping her by creating a diversion by performing her routine on top of a car in the dodgy end of Glasgow while her best friend Jenna gets away um it was an amazing film to get to make I played Mandy because I was like I want to have a full career of placing plus size women front and center I gotta walk the walk (laughs) so I did it this one time so I never have to do it again and um it was really amazing. We um had a really tight turnaround. Uh, so we were commissioned in September. We shot in the start of February and it came out on, it had its debut at the Bolton Film Festival um, in October. And since then it's played at Aesthetica and Norwich. And right now it is out online way sooner than we thought we'd ever get it out online, which is very exciting because it's part of the 16th 
um, 16 Days, 16 Films Film Festival, which is a festival that runs alongside the UN 16 Days of Activism, which is used to raise awareness and to and, and to do things to end gender-based violence. Um, to see Candy released in this context is just so amazing and powerful and I just feel really really happy to be able to share it with the world in that context as part of these films it's working towards something because as much as I, I made it specifically because I was tired of seeing women who looked at me reduced to the fat girl best friend trope with like you know they're either just there to be laughed at if this was an Anna Kendrick Rebel Wilson thing then Anna Kendrick would be the main character she would have escaped and you wouldn't give a second thought to the fact that Rebel Wilson was living her best life dancing on a car and I wanted to split that narrative to put her and give and give her some serious like give her some serious screen time and give her some serious appreciation as yes you want to do something this is important to you and that deserves to be the main character here that deserves your story and um yeah it's really amazing and it's out now and it's only going to be out though until Christmas Eve so watch it while you can <laughs> we'll obviously put all the links for it in um the description of today's episode so everybody can find it and um we'll also pop it all on the socials for you all listeners so that you can go and watch Candy um I'm fascinated to know what the reaction's been to it so far Sarah it has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, it hasn't reached a huge audience yet, but the audience it has reached has been so kind and so supportive. And it's just been amazing. I've already met so many amazing people through the through being able to screen at a couple of festivals um, this year. And it's just been it's just been so great and I it did I think it does exactly what I wanted to I wanted people to watch it and then get to the end of it and want to get up and dance and strip on top of a car and lots of people have told me that's exactly what they want to do afterwards so I think mission accomplished <laughs> I, mean, I would say so yeah um you do I mean it's got quite a lot of what's the word I'm looking hot topics she says in quotation marks you yeah. know so like we're talking about burlesque and how that's viewed through our mainstream gaze as well. Um, and that idea of um, stripping and performance and sex work and all of those things that all kind of combine into that. And then you've obviously got the body positivity and being a plus size woman. And then we've got a gender and um, violence storyline as well. So there's like so many things going on. I mean, I jokingly, not jokingly at all, because I said to you at the start, no doubt we'll end up talking about the fact that, you know, heroin chic is coming back, apparently. Boo! Boo! Louise literally just rolled her eyes to the back of her head, but nobody can see that. Um, and I want to vomit in my mouth. So, uh, yeah, like, it just there's so many things, I think, and I would love you, if you can, to talk about them a little bit more, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Um, so plus size, like activism, specifically plus size women, is a really important. Is something that's really important to me. But I think that just plus, I've always been plus size. Like I've I've been like a size eighteen since I was eighteen, and my dad's a bigger guy. My aunts are bigger, and they've spent like their entire lives on and off diets, losing weight. And when I see them go, "Hi, how are you doing?" and they're like, "I've lost six pounds," and I'm just like, "Good." For you and that it becomes their whole life 
And after a really unhealthy relationship with my body, I kind of feel that there's a lot of unpicking and almost making up for lost time that I have to do. And I think my body is always an elephant in the room whenever I enter a creative space. Whenever I am an authority, someone, and especially because I work in comedy quite a lot, people are expecting me to make the obvious joke, which is to make a joke about my own body, which will then give others permission to do the same. And that's a really interesting construct to me. So a lot of my work recently has been unpicking that and questioning that and interrogating that, interrogating how we view plus size women on screen, what the stereotypes are. And um, it was really, really good because when it was really good to explore that with Mandy, because when I wrote the when I wrote Candy, I specifically wanted to write a film that reflected where I was as a director at the time. So I felt that I'd never had a big a big amount of funding I'd never been industry funded before but I knew that I was ready for it I knew that I'd done amazing things like with zero budgets and I've managed to make things work and I was persistent and I could I could turn things around and I knew that if they gave me the funding I could make it happen but saying that in private versus actually putting my money where my mouth is is a different thing. Having confidence in yourself quietly versus out in the world where people can challenge you on it and people will and want to challenge you on it is a different kind of thing. And I was gearing myself up for that. Mandy is someone who is wanting to do burlesque and reclaim that she or feel she wants to feel sexy, but not only feel sexy, she wants to share the fact that she feels sexy with other people through this burlesque burlesque is a really body positive and friendly space so it's a perfect way to do it but having confidence in herself she knows that she's sexy she fucks she's she's a queen we know that she has that confidence in herself but taking it onto a stage and opening yourself up to the cruel world and saying almost saying i am sexy fight me is so difficult and that's where I kind of that's where I wanted um so also what is filmmaking if not bearing your whole ass to the world <laughs> so I um I think that's where the story came from but it was really powerful for me to be able to use a body metaphor as well for where I was creatively um and yeah, and I got to do amazing things because there was an element of I was trying to tell myself that I could do anything. So, you know, when like, you know, if you're trying to, if someone's trying to like, you know, reset your shoulder after you dislocate it, they'll punch you in the face, one pain to distract another. Me playing the part of Mandy, taking my clothes off in front of a whole team of people was the pain. <laughs> I was, I if I did that, then I wouldn't worry about the fact that, I'd ha that I got given a big budget and I couldn't fuck it up. <laughs> Um, that's what I wanted to do. Um, the the storyline with Jenna and Chris, the gender-based violence storyline, is that I kind of wanted to explore something that I really hated seeing a lot that, again, the way that I kind of think that poverty porn has often been like, look at the drama. I hate that the, dra the drama, quotation marks, is 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 the abuse and I'm like the abuse is not the drama the abuse is the culture and other people's stories can exist outside of that so Mandy as the main character is affected by the ripples of Jenna's relationship I also wanted to explore the fact that an abusive relationship and female friendship can be caught early as early as possible one thing that I had to stand my ground repeatedly repeatedly on was how much Jenna was abused before she was allowed to leave and it was a hill I'm going to die on. They were like, oh, he's only upended a coffee table 
surely that's not enough for him for her to leave I don't feel I don't feel that she really feels unsafe can we maybe do something to make her feel unsafe and I'm like Jenna can leave whenever the fuck she wants Jenna can leave whenever she starts to get the smallest red flag she can leave whenever doesn't have he doesn't have to hit her he doesn't have to do anything she is allowed to leave and Mandy being a friend who is there for her when she sees this vulnerable moment I think is a case of I I think that if Mandy didn't go over to Jenna's at that night to pick a fight with her and seen what had happened she would have tidied things up convinced herself because we convince ourselves that this isn't bad enough for me to leave and her friend seeing her friend see that and react to it has been like oh god I'm in danger so I kind of wanted to show that side of it also I am so tired of the woman with the black eye being synonymous with abuse it, it's so much more nuanced than that and I think also deciding not to make that the main storyline was a choice because again as much as Jenna's going through this really dramatic thing Mandy wants to be a burlesque dancer both stories are valid and can exist alongside each other Mandy's story because it's trivial compared to Jenna's is no more or less important to her in her life and I kind of wanted to explore that um there was a lot that went into candy. There was a lot of processing. <laughs> um, and it's yeah. incredible that, yeah, there is a lot in it. And your script is tight as a drum, mate. Like, it's really, <laughs> like, no, honestly, like, right from the top, it's like, beat, beat, beat. We get it. It's economical. We see exactly what you're doing and exactly what needs to happen. We get told so much about each of them through these, like, one lines, a look, a, a moment. It's so economical. And and therefore you get all of this stuff, this textural, layered, nuanced stuff about friendship, about where Mandy's at, about where Jenna's at, everything. And you get it in like what well, must be what 15 pages, because it's like 15 minutes, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, I think it's 14 minutes with credits. I think I was like, I don't want as much as I'm allowed to make a 15-minute film, I only want to make a 12 and a half minute film. I don't want to be. <laughs> I think that especially with BFI funding, there's a kind of traditional look and feel and there's an element of like stylistic bloatedness. And I was like, I don't fucking want it. <laughs> Bored. Um, yeah. I love the fact, I love the top. I love the top of the film as well as the fact that it opens with Mandy bringing a guy home. Yeah. And I love that sexual, pos- that sexual and body positivity. The fact that she is about feeling sexy and she does feel sexy. And just through that interaction, we see exactly what will propel her a little bit further along her journey. And and I, yeah, it's just, and oh God, the, the noting, getting noted like that fucks me off. Like nobody's business. It's just so I also have so many thoughts on the noting because I'm like, clearly none of those people have ever been in a room where somebody slipped a table over for a That's exactly hour. what I was thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And also I think, what I think is brilliant about this, Sarah, is the fact that there will be, hopefully, there will be people who are in, who are maybe even at the start of that kind of abusive relationship, who see that and go, fuck, that's not okay. Yeah. And go, I'm out. Rather than, as you said, we tell ourselves, just flipped a table. It was just a bad moment. We you all have it. bad moments. Yeah and talk it off and brush it away and try and let it go because it as you say it's a red flag yeah I did um some pitching I did some pitching work like um uh with the Glasgow Women's Aid at one point and one thing they said that so many of the women that they work with 
say if they're not in a if they're not in a physical altercation is like I wish he'd hit me because then I could leave and that just that breaks my heart that actually breaks my heart that someone is wanting the themselves to go through physical harm so they have an excuse in society's eye and I'm like nah nah absolutely not it bothers me so much and it's really interesting you were talking about the notes is that obviously kind of like having an industry funded short like it comes with lots of different notes and it was very interesting for the first time not just having to go on exactly how I wanted to do things I had to pick my battles with my notes so there was a lot of notes that were trying that would try to maneuver Mandy into being the supporting character to Jenna because they were more naturally interested in the domestic storyline and I had to say things like I understand where you're coming from I do however feel there's an unconscious bias to make Jenna the main character I also had a note like because um in the film Jenna has her precious artifacts in a little box including dance memorabilia from when she was younger um that was originally on a shelf I was like she has this one shelf in the room and it's where she has her trophies and like her trophies and her photos from when she was younger and her shoes like her old shoes and that's what it comes from and that's what she takes with her this one shelf that she's allowed to have and I was told no if she was in a really abusive relationship then she wouldn't have a shelf she wouldn't be allowed to have a shelf and I was like no only having one shelf in a house that you live in is still not okay but they're like, no, 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 I don't think that people are going to believe that she's abused, that she's in a bad relationship. And I was like, have you seen, I mean, we worked with Cameron Fulton, who is one of the most amazing actors that I've ever worked with. And he just got it straight away. And he was the smiliest, happiest, huggiest person. But the threat he conveyed underneath it, she could have had that entire room kitted out in dance gear and still Cameron would have walked in and sold it. And so I had, but that was one I had to concede on because I had to figure out which ones were more important to me. The unconscious bias of keeping Mandy predominantly as the main character and not being the fat girl best friend to Jenna. The um the the, the Jenna can leave whenever she wants or like, or, or the box. I had to pick which one was least important and they're all important. They're all important for different reasons, but that was an interesting, that was an interesting um conversation. Yeah, I bet it was. I think sometimes with these things, it's like development executives want to get their like stamp on it in some way and they're not writers I'm not saying they're not talented or creative people yeah. but that it is that like push pull of like well we want our stamp on it and we're being very broad strokes about what's dramatic and what's I don't know quote unquote worthy um so I'm glad you I'm glad you fought the battles that were the, the I ones think that's also really great for people to hear as well Sarah because there'll be so many people listening who are maybe at the start of their career and moving through and how you know where they're kind of hoping to be at some point and what then happens because again that's one of those things that isn't always talked about obviously if you get the chance to be on programs like both of you have been on then you you obviously find that out but not everybody might go through that process and then all of a sudden they're like what do you mean I have to yeah why do I have to change things (laughs) yeah yeah um and I think so I think it's really great to have mentioned that and I just also wanted to say like I think it's um so important like Louise mentions the fact that at the beginning Mandy brings back a guy and it's something that I remember speaking I can't even remember it was oh it was Callan Crawford this is like three years ago talking about the fact that we don't see the variety of shapes of women be sexy on screen oh yeah fat girls fuck sorry to sorry to disillusion y'all yeah (laughs) 
and and it's sexy yeah like yeah and I wanted to I didn't want you to feel sorry for her I, I it was really important to me that you knew from the first moment that Mandy owned her body I think it's so easy again that's like you're waiting for someone you're wait you're waiting for the obvious joke so I think that if I didn't have this blatant rumbling one night stand just rolling in and making a mess I think people would have been waiting for the moment when Mandy sat down with Jenna being like can you, do you think that I can do it do you think people will make fun of me for being fat and they would have waited for that and I would they would have been disappointed that I didn't give it to them because that's what they would have expected but if I was just like she rolls in and she's like I fucked hard it didn't the routine didn't go very well but I'm going to do it in front of a room full of strangers then you're like we're not waiting for the joke anymore so yeah also, super smart sex positive in all my work yeah, it's so important though because women yeah. are made to in particular women are made to from a very young age to sex becomes this your precious fucking flower or whatever you want to fucking call it and all of this pish and that we are in society there's still that hangover of you know, you can't have multiple partners and you know there's still a quote-unquote shame the culture of shame around yeah. women's bodies is oh man it's a bloody labyrinth to navigate and again you just have to unpick it and it's hard work and it's unfair that we are the ones that have to do it about ourselves but the work is worth it and but yeah it's very difficult (laughs) that yeah the culture of shame around bodies it's I think especially with fat phobia is that what I don't think a lot of people don't understand is they equate fatness with morality. So instead of like, if, if there was someone who was very, very thin, naturally very thin, that's just the way they were. And they put it away. They ate and ate and ate and ate. And someone was like, how the hell do you look like you do when you put up, when you eat what you do? And they go, I don't know. It's just genetics. You'd be like, Oh, you're a lucky bugger. However, if you have someone who is a plus size person who exercises in a diet and exercises in diets constantly and doesn't lose weight, they say, why aren't you thinner? Because I don't know. It's just genetics. You'd be like, mm, is it though? Is it though? Is, is that, is that what's happening? And you wouldn't believe them because we're, we're, we tie fatness to morality. When you see someone that is fat on screen, you instantly assume that, assume that they are lazy and slovenly and have lower self, um, lower self-esteem. And then there's the reformed fatty stroke, Monica and friends, when you have, you, you know that she has gone through this determination and she has self-worth, but also a complicated self-image that's resulted in things like her OCD. It's, oh, I don't like, sorry, I'm like, uh, this is definitely the front of my, my book. I have a book coming out next year um, with Tipping Rear Press and it's called Fat Girl Best Friend. And it's a nonfiction book that is, that specifically looks at examples of plus size women in film and television and the tropes that, the tropes that you would have missed because we see them so infrequently. It's hard to line them all up together and see where the similarities are. But uh, my book will rip that apart. <laughs> Um, so it's very, it's very much this kind of theory, this context is very much at the front of my brain right now. So I, I go off on soapbox galore. <laughs> no, please do. It's so it's, it's a really, really vitally important conversation because it's literally life and death in many ways. Mm. I mean, the, the fat phobia that exists in our society and that gets reinforced to us through our stories on screen is literally 
it's it can be a fatal bit of yep. programming uh, oh, because yeah. we're being programmed to feel that fat people only can exist but they have to suffer they have to be in pain because clearly that it's it's wrong for them to be the way they are like that is that is the message that is getting sent to us by every bit of media we consume up until this point yeah and it's toxic and horrific and uh yeah so fight get on that so well, don't get off it stay on it <laughs> I, read, I read this stat recently and it really shocked me only six percent of people with eating disorders are underweight like i think you just think that an eating disorder is either vomiting or um like ultra skinny and it's so different it's it's not that at all it's such a nuanced it's such a an intense and nuanced subject and I'm not saying that that needs to be explored in different dramas and things I just think that it needs to be acknowledged that what we have been fed has been a stereotype and any work we can be doing to break down that stereotype not even on the soapbox just by presenting a different point of view is important work that needs done. Totally. Absolutely. Cannot wait to read your book. It's I know. very important it comes out soon. Very much. I think we're due to <laughs> it. I don't have a release date, but we're due to do it in the spring. This is, this is the, have the draft. I mean, so what there. we'll do, because what? I'm like, continue and want to continue to talk to you now for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> is when your book comes out, Sarah will get you back on because get actually on. that whole conversation about women in film and everything is so vital so before we finish up just a little reminder for everybody um where they can find candy right now uh yep it's on the 16film16days.com it's the website for no sorry 16 days 16 films it's that way around um and on the website you'll find not only candy but all the other films um that are part of the festival that are amazing we sit in an incredible cohort and they are going to be available until christmas day and then they are going to disappear for another year and a half so watch it now <laughs> fabulous um since we are in december i do have a question for you mm-hmm. what is your favorite christmas movie <laughs> that's so difficult I love Christmas movies but like I also I'm not sure if I like the Christmas movies I love that one day in December I put my jammies on and watch all the crap ones like the new ones that come out the really really cheesy ones yeah um one that jumped up like to my one of my favorite lists really recently was one of Netflix's last year called Single All The Way which is like a queer storyline which is amazing it has Kathy Najimi in it and it has um uh Jennifer Coolridge as well and yes it's just delightful it's so good um I also really love Die Hard (laughs) so because it is a Christmas film people yes it is a Christmas it's a what's your favorite Christmas movie actually Die Hard's in my top three I watch Die Hard every boxing day Amazing. Oh, I think my number one is A Muppet Christmas Carol, but that's like one of my yes. favorite films. Never mind Christmas films, just one of my favorite films of all time. It's that's perfect. it. That's that's yeah. my top as well. That's my top. I think uh I think if I was to answer with my writer's head on, I think it's Home Alone, just because of that script um, is, it is a script. And all of the foreshadowing that happens in the lead up to everything that goes on. I love it. It just rings my bell. <laughs> that is that's a good one. Um Sarah, our last question, and I kind of feel like the whole podcast is this, but I'm <laughs> going to ask you anyway. And I know that you listen to the podcast, so um, I know that I don't need to explain to you why we're called Persistent and Nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to ask you, Sarah Grant, what does the phrase Persistent and Nasty mean to you? 
I think it means being brave to me. It means being yourself and what you have to say. Any voice inside your brain that says that what you have to say isn't needed or valid, unpick it and say it anyway. Like, I think that's it. So that's that's me. <laughs> I love it. Unpick it and say it anyway. That's like a badge. Remember we were going to put all <laughs> things on badges, Louise? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That would make an excellent badge. Can I have, can I make one note? Can it be unfuck it? <laughs> unfuck it. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it might play better on a badge. Sarah, um, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, absolute joy. I'm so glad that we've managed to yeah. make this work after my quiet plotting for a couple it's of years to get so you on good. it's been so lovely thank you so much for having me and we will it's been a joy. definitely have you back on when your book is released um, so for good. everybody for candy details check um, today's episode notes and also check our social media and until next time lovely listeners stay, stay nasty, nasty.